Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Lizzie, to be quite honest... I think I feel hungover, and it's not to do with alcohol. I think it's is a news hangover a thing? I don't drink, but do you have you a know, budget hangover. Well, was that a reference to the beer duty in the budget? No, but it could be. <laughs> well done. See, you're firing on more cylinders than I am today. You had you had a day out in Westminster, um, your your second home, I think, at this stage. Uh, look, we're we're the day after the budget. You were down there talking to all the the important people to speak to. What are you thinking about the budget now? a day after we heard from Jeremy Hunt. Well, look, now that we've had time to digest it, there are lots of disappointed Conservatives who wanted more tax cuts. There are others who are worried that there isn't enough headroom. The two don't really add up. There are others who are angry that Rishi Sunak's on course to fail his pledge to reduce overall immigration because they've been through the budget documents and they've seen that there's set to be a rise in non-EU migration. I have to say, the rabbit out of the hat was that Jeremy Hunt is cutting taxes on pension pots over a million pounds. So that was more generous than expected. And it was the only permanent tax cut in the budget. And it kind of reminded me of when Kwasi Kwarteng cut the top rate of income tax as his rabbit out of the hat in the mini budget. It made me think, if you're going to leak everything else so that people can digest it, why not let that one be one of the things? Yeah, well, I suppose the, the contrast with the mini-budget, or at least another point of contrast with the mini-budget, is that, frankly, financial markets weren't that bothered by what they heard from Jeremy Hunt, and that's because they were entirely focused on something else, which I think is the cause of my news hangover today, and that's everything that's been happening around Credit Suisse, the major Swiss bank. Uh, huge sell-off in their shares yesterday, massive sell-off across global markets. As a result... The Swiss central bank has stepped in overnight to give them some support. That's supporting the shares again today. So things are feeling a little bit different. But Credit Suisse isn't just a Swiss story, uh, as the former Bank of England advisor Peter Hahn told us earlier on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Credit Suisse has a substantial business footprint in the UK. And I think the Prudential and the Conduct Authority need to really focus on that very well and understand. I'm sure they're having that, that dialogue. The other thing is that Anytime a major institution goes into trouble, as you, you can clearly see, you know, it affects confidence in the sector. So settling what happens at Credit Suisse is a, is a very important issue. 
So that's Peter Han, Emeritus Professor of Banking and Finance, the London Institute of Banking and Finance, and as I said, a former senior advisor to the Bank of England. Markets recovering a little bit today after that inflation of the Swiss Central Bank overnight, but I think that's left me feeling a bit credit squished. <laughs> I saw a joke saying that it's debit Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's move on, shall we? Back to the budget. (laughs) Yeah, so Jeremy Hunt really has thrown the kitchen sink at growth because, of course, there's an election on the horizon. But even though the Office for Budget Responsibility has said that Britain's going to avoid a technical recession this year, the economy is still on course to shrink by 0.2%. And the Chancellor's left him with razor-thin margins. So I asked the OBR chair, Richard Hughes, when I met him in Westminster, whether that's wise. He has left himself the narrowest margin of any Chancellor against his fiscal targets in five years' time. He leaves himself £6.5 billion worth of headroom, which sounds like like a lot. But if you think about it, just a 1% rise in interest rates on a debt stock of 100% of GDP would cost him £20 billion. And we've seen interest rates go up by a lot more than that just in the past year. So if interest rates change, that could mean he wipes out his headroom. If energy prices change, that could also uh, take away from his headroom. So to unpack the economics of the budget, we're joined now by Dan Hansen, Senior UK Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Hiya, Dan. Hiya. So the Resolution Foundation reports that Hunt would have had, well, he would have failed the fiscal rules of the three longest serving Tory chancellors since 2010, even though he's lifted the tax burden to its highest in 70 years. You've got fuel duty frozen temporarily, quote unquote, for a decade. But if it was factored in as a permanent measure, the margins would have been even narrower. So what I wanted to ask you was, are these self-set fiscal rules even meaningful? I think that's a really good question. And I think if you if you go back through through time, the number of times the fiscal fiscal rules have been changed since 2010 has been it's been a significant number. I don't know off the top of my head. But I mean, if you look at um, what Hunt did yesterday, I think the surprise actually was the scale of the giveaway that he he sort of set out. So you had 20 billion pounds in the first three years of the forecast. It fell to 10 billion pounds at the end of the forecast. Part of the reason why the giveaway fell off was so that he hit his his fiscal his fiscal rules and of course as you heard richard hughes say there six and a half billion pounds is a tiny tiny sum of money and you've mentioned fuel duty but you've got defense spending you've got this idea that one day this temporary uh, investment allowance that he he set out yesterday will become a permanent investment allowance and that comes at a significant cost as well about nine billion pounds a year so he's not left himself very much headroom. And I think the takeaway for me is that he's he's set out his stall quite early for the for the election and gone for a bigger giveaway now. Um, and he hasn't really got much more room to to do significant tax cuts in particular in in the run up to the election, which seems to be likely next year. I mean, given the background here, you know, we talked about everything that's happening at Credit Suisse. We had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, only a couple of days ago as well. If the market turmoil continues, if headroom is wiped out, what does that actually mean for the Chancellor? Well, during periods of stress, and I, you know, I don't I don't want to make comparisons to 2009, but if you look back to, to that period during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, the, the fiscal rules tend to be put to one side during really, really significant periods of stress. So, I don't think it necessarily means that it would prevent him from supporting the economy if he really needed to to really stick his hand in his pocket and make a massive intervention as a result of everything that's happening. I'm not suggesting he's going to have to do that at all, but 
I think the fiscal rules just get cast to one side. What what we know and why they they exist is in times of relative calm, you need them to ensure market confidence. And at the start of the program there, you were talking about quasi-quarting. The fact is that the reason the market reacted so badly, or one of the reasons the market reacted so badly to what was set out in the in the plan for growth back in September, was that it appeared that fiscal responsibility had just been uh, tossed out the window. So I think they're important in times of, of calm, but if you know no one's going to punish the government, if the market's not going to punish the government, I should say, if they if they need to reach into their pockets and support the economy because the, a big shock hits. And. The OBR is forecasting that there isn't going to be a technical recession, but there's a difference between the OBR's forecasts and the Bank of England's forecasts. Do you agree with them? Where do you sit on that spectrum? Yeah, there's there's quite a lot of difference, and, and you're right. So, I mean, in the near term, the OBR is more optimistic than the bank. Um, as you say, there's not a technical recession in the OBR's forecast now. And I'm sort of inclined to believe the OBR more than the bank, which has a year-long recession, um, further out, the bank is more pessimistic, again, about the, the ability of the economy to recover and the economy's trend growth rate. So the bank penciled in 0.7% a year, which is very, very low. The OBR are much more optimistic. They're about a percentage point higher on the ability of the economy to grow per year without stoking inflation. So their trend growth assumption is about 1.75%. We sit somewhere in the middle of those two, so our trend growth assumptions are um, 1.2%. So I, I'm a little bit more inclined to believe the OBR in the near term, but in the medium term, I'm more inclined to, to believe the bank. Um, and I think if you just then bring that back to what we were talking about, headroom, clearly if the economy doesn't grow as fast in the medium term, the tax take doesn't grow as fast, and that means that the any headroom that the, gov- uh, the Chancellor does have will be quite quite quickly wiped out if the if the economy doesn't recover as the OBR predicts. Well, what does that mean then for the picture down the line? Because this, if we look at the measures, I mean, it looks like a lot of giveaways in the short term, but should we be worried then about the picture further out, especially when it comes to things like business investment? Yeah, I mean, I, I am a little bit worried about it, but the way the fiscal rule is set, because it rolls on every year, it's never binding. So he, which if the Chancellor or the Chancellor of the day continues to run a fiscal rule as as Hunt has, that person can always pencil in spending cuts or tax rises if they choose to go down that route further into the future. And it, it, as I say, this this rule never really binds. But I think I think there is a big risk, and I think you're right here, Stephen, that the economy does underperform what the OBR is predicting. Perhaps not in the near term, as I say, but I think moving into 2024 and 2025. I think growth is likely to be weaker, and of course that that uh, that period is um, overhangs the period where we're potentially going to get a change of government, and I think it, the the economic picture won't be as rosy at that point as the OBR expects. I want to dig a bit deeper into the individual measures in the budget to plug the holes in the labour market. Hunt's big policies were abolishing the tax-free lifetime allowance to get older workers not to retire early and then extending free childcare provision. But the childcare extension isn't going to happen fully until September 2025. Industry professionals are worried that there won't be enough staff to meet demand. And the pension reform, when you look at it, costs more per worker but brings fewer workers back. So I asked Richard Hughes about this. Take a listen. 
we think that overall employment is going to be up by about 110,000 by the end of our forecast. Most of the work in the budget in terms of getting people back into work is actually done by the childcare measure. That's about 60,000 people back into the workforce based on our estimates. The pension measure is relatively small in terms of its employment impact. We think it only gets about 15,000 more people back into the workforce. The rest of the 110,000 comes from changes to the benefit regime and changes to the support the DWP provides those people out of work. Dan, is Labour's criticism fair that the pension reforms disproportionately benefit the rich? Uh, yeah, I can get it. I think that is fair. I mean, I think I think one of the things that struck me about it as well is that when you're thinking about labour supply and you heard Richard Hughes there talking about um, these measures bringing people back into the workforce. I mean, one thing, of course, with, with what's changed is that if if you're an individual who has a target amount of savings that you want to get to um, before you retire, this these changes allow you to get there quicker um, without obviously incurring big um a big tax bill so it's possible that, so the OBR have, have sort of assumed net there's a boost to employment but it's possible actually sort of longer term with this policy that you find people actually end up retiring a little bit earlier because as I say they can reach that pension pot um a, a little bit sooner so there, there are there's definitely a two-way risk around the the um the pension reforms when it comes to labor supply but I agree with the labor labor's criticism that yes it disproportionately benefits benefits the wealthy what about the other measures designed to boost the labour market? You know, we had the the childcare measures, um, you know, budget documents showing the government plans to loosen immigration rules to attract more foreign builders to the construction industry, for example. Will those make a material difference to the tight labour market? I mean, I I think with, I, I, I take a similar view to the OBR with these things that if you look in their document, the 110,000 boost to labour supply, it essentially, the the net effect on GDP at the end of the forecast is to lift the level of GDP by 0.2%. Now, if you put that into the context of the forecast as a whole, GDP over their forecast period grows by nearly 10%. So it accounts for a very small amount of the growth that the OBR expects over over the next five years. And what, what I think it broadly reflects is that it's it's a little bit easier to affect the demand side of the economy through fiscal policy and as we know monetary policy as well the supply side is a bit like a super tanker and it takes a lot to turn it around and move it in a really meaningfully different direction um and i think that's what you've seen here with what the obr has done and i agree with them that the effects of these things are likely to be modest that's not to say that they shouldn't be done that's the key thing i mean i think these these policies are steps in the right direction and it's for me, the, the, the policies that were set out broadly look to tackle the big issues that the UK is facing. But, you know, going back to where we started, it, Hunt is very fiscally constrained and he can't throw as much, I think, as he'd like at it. So, um, yes, I think, you know, these things, they're going to make a, a difference at the margin, but are they going to really change the big picture? I'm, I'm less convinced. Yeah, I mean, Labour's main criticism of the budget in the lead up was that it wasn't going to be ambitious enough in the long term. So I, I do wonder whether um, Rachel Reeves would have ended up with any different margins, the shadow chancellor. But just coming back to the OBR's forecast, it's now saying that there's going to be a smaller rise in unemployment than it did in November. Does that change your forecast for the housing market slowdown? No, so we've got a, a similar forecast to the OBR, so a peak to trough fall um, in uh, house prices of 10%. Um, we've we continued, we've held that view for, for quite a while. 
But I think you're absolutely right about the labour market. Um, it's it's fundamental to how far house prices could eventually fall um, in the UK if it, if it does hold up. Um, it it could be not as severe as that. The peach trough fall in house prices. So, yeah, I think watch watching the unemployment rate will be key for for the outlook for the housing market. I mean, just to say on on the unemployment rate itself, we don't see anything. We don't see a, mar- a significantly different um, path for unemployment to the OBR. We have a peak of four and a half percent in the unemployment rate, so we're not materially different to the OBR. and that's because essentially we have a, a relatively similar view to the, on the near-term outlook to them, which is a very, very shallow downturn in the economy. Dan, we've had the budget. Uh, now we have had all of the everything that's happened in banking over the past week or so. At this stage, how much visibility do we have about the Bank of England's next decision next week? I mean, that's, that's a fantastically complicated question now with everything that's happened. I mean, I think... I think if you go back to February and remember what the bank said in February, they said they basically said we're nearly done. And they said we probably need to be surprised by the data to do more. Now, what's happened in the data is that we've had surprises in on the activity side of the economy. You've had a bit of a fiscal loosening yesterday, but we've also had slightly weaker uh, data on the inflation side. So pays slowed a little bit faster than the bank was, was probably expecting. Services inflation has slowed a little bit faster. And now you've got this financial stability risk. So at this juncture, our call is that they will still go for 25 basis points in March, citing the tightness of the labour market and the fact that the economy is holding up a lot better than they had been expecting. But it is a very, very close call. And I think watching what the ECB does today and especially what the Fed does uh, on Wednesday will be will be central to to what the bank does as well because if one of those two central banks flag that essentially go on hold and send a signal that they're worried about something in the banking sector um, whether that be via Credit Suisse or whether that be via SVB I think the bank will take take a signal from that and potentially pause as well so in terms of visibility I'm not sure we've got a huge amount but I think we'll learn more over over the coming days and seeing what the other central banks do. All right, Dan Hansen, Senior UK Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Thanks very much for being with us. I have to say, Stephen, I don't know if it's my budget hangover, but I'm feeling a bit depressed. Ah, no, surely not, Lizzie. I'm sure you'll find things to cheer us up in the coming days. Thanks very much to Dan. Well, let's get more reaction to the measures announced in the budget now. We're joined by Kitty Usher, who's Chief Economist at the Institute of Directors. Kitty, great to have you with us. Was this a good budget for business? I think overall, uh, I would say yes, probably, with a couple of caveats. Um, the main thing that uh, businesses, I think, will feel really reassured by is quite a simple thing, which is that the economic forecast um, isn't as bad as everybody was expecting a couple of months ago. Um, so the Office of Budget Responsibility, which obviously does um, uh, an independent macroeconomic forecast, as well as judging on the sustainability of the Chancellor's uh, decisions for the public finances, uh said last November, which is really not a very long time ago, that they thought the recession in 2023 this year would be minus 1.4%. The economy would shrink by that. And that's now only minus 0.2. And um, sort of crucially for the optics um, of the sort of economic headlines is they said that the technical definition of a recession would be avoided, which means which is uh, 
two consecutive quarters of a contraction. So the kind of phasing is such that we won't actually be in recession, which um, given that uh, last summer, the Bank of England frightened everybody by saying we're going to have the longest recession that anyone can remember. You know, this is really good news. Um, and a rising tide raises all boats. And, you know, if you're running a business, the last thing you want is for uh, the economy to be shrinking um, in any sort of meaningful way. Having said that, of course, it's, you know, minus 0.2% is basically flat. Um, but the kind of prospects for recovery are, are much uh, closer than previously thought. And they also substantially revised downwards their inflation forecast. So inflation has probably peaked already and should fall quite rapidly um, within the course of this year. So that will be very reassuring as well. Kitty, we were, just talking to, yeah. we were just talking to our in-house economist, Dan Hansen, and he was saying things look a lot rosier in the short term than they do in the further out term. What about the picture for business investment? Is that the same? Is it going to be worse in the medium, longer term? So, well, in terms of the specific policy announcements, um, they made a very welcome move, um, but to your point, only for the next three years in allowing uh, what's called full expensing for capital investment in year one, uh, which for, for larger companies um, prior to the pandemic wasn't possible. They had to phase it over a few years. So this, this, is, this is very good news in the short term. Um, and should uh, raise levels of business investment. In fact, I think the Office of Budget Responsibility, you know, did alter their forecast as a result of the policy to uh, to, to raise um, their forecast of investment. But the, the reason why I talked about the, the macroeconomic forecast is that um, certainly for the sector that we represent, which is the sort of mid-market of British business, so anything from a, um, a kind of freelance consultant through to turnover of um, some hundreds of millions of pounds, perhaps, so less likely to be listed, but maybe listed on, on, on AIM. Your perception of what's going to happen in the economy is absolutely crucial to whether you decide to invest, because when you're investing, you're, you're putting capital at risk, and whether it's, you know, retained profits or, you know, you've gone to the debt markets or investors are putting capital in, the last thing you want to do is make that decision and, and then have it wiped out by things outside your control. But so to that, to that point, to that point yeah. is, it, is, it, is it a concern that it's only a three-year measure? Uh, is that something that perhaps actually might hold back the otherwise investment that could be made? Well, yes, it's a concern, first of all. It seems rather odd to have made it a three-year measure because you actually get the you actually take the hit in terms of the public finance kind of up front on 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 this change because it's it's really sort of phasing of of, of receipts um so once you've taken the hit you might as well carry on and get the economic uh benefits in terms of what it will do i mean you could probably argue it either way it may be that you're more likely to bring big investments forward to take advantage um but i think probably overall what you want is a stable policy environment and you want to sort of shift the dial in terms of the culture uh, of investing. So, um, which obviously you don't get if it's only a temporary um, change. So I, I don't see much sense overall in it, in it just being temporary. To be fair to the Chancellor, he said that he wanted to make it permanent if he could. I suspect they couldn't meet their fiscal target uh, to get debt falling as a proportion of, of the economy in the fifth year, which is what they need to do by by making it permanent. So they had to sort of slightly reverse it. Um, so that's that's not good policy making. And let's 
let's hope the numbers improve so that it will be possible to confirm that it that it that it that it will be permanent going forwards. And apart from trying to incentivise business investment, the other big focus of this budget was, of course, trying to lure workers back into the labour force. There are some 8,000 people who will benefit from lifting the lifetime pension allowance. Surely, Kitty, some of those are your some of those are your members at the IOD. Do you think it was a good use of the limited fiscal headroom? Well, I know that this has become quite politicised with the Labour Party saying that it was you know, taxpayers' money being used to give those to give to those who were already affluent, um, and so therefore they would uh, reverse it. In, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, if you are, uh, if you've already contributed uh, a million pounds to your to your pension pot, which will feel totally inaccessible to most people, um, to be, you know, making making those choices, then some people might be influenced by it. Um, uh, but you know, you always get more money by working, by carrying on working rather rather than retiring uh, anyway. Um, so I think possibly of more relevance um, to employers is uh, the issues uh, is the support for childcare, which you know surprised everybody by how generous it was and is and is extraordinarily welcome. And so, regardless of whether you actually yourself a parent of. Uh, preschool children are likely to be one in the near future. Uh, if you're an employer, the chances are that you do have people in that situation on your team. And so this will make it much easier to um, for them to offer their talents in, in, into the labour market and potentially have, have, have other people um, available to employ that wouldn't have offered their services previously. So that is really welcome. Now, the Chancellor has said that there will be changes to rules around listings in London, um, which is, of course, a subject that we've been following very closely here at Bloomberg after the ARM decision to list in the US, but not until the autumn. Is that too long to wait? And and what changes would you and your members like to see when it comes to listing rules? I think one can... I think you need to take a broader view on this. So I think you can get sort of drawn into the headlines around a particular firm uh, and where they decide to go. And the government is is kind of quite sensitive to that. Um, from an institute of directors point of view, I think we'd be slightly wary about sort of lowering the um, standards app- uh, applied to British listings. Um, we are, after all, the professional body um, responsible for corporate governance. And I think we'd be slightly nervous uh, about losing our sort of reputation uh, in that regard uh, by chasing individual firms. But I can see why there are policy temptations uh, to do so. So I think the government is is looking, sort of refreshing its thoughts on um, financial regulation. It's also looking at ways to uh, channel asset managers, uh, particularly of perhaps DC defined contribution pension schemes to invest more in the real economy and all of this is being wrapped up into announcements later in the year. Okay, Kitty Usher, Chief Economist at the Institute of Directors, thank you so much for joining us on the programme and giving us your uh, view on the budget announced by Jeremy Hunt. Well, I have to say there is an elephant in the room, Stephen, and there was an elephant yesterday. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> There was an elephant yesterday in the in the parliamentary chamber in Westminster, and it was the strikes mm. where I was standing on College Green. There were all the strikers there. Some of the 
half million people uh, who were protesting about not getting enough pay uh, given the cost of living crisis. Which and didn't in, really feature in the speeches that were happening inside. Right, exactly. But today, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, says he's hopeful that a pay deal with the NHS may be imminent. So we'll be watching how that develops. OK, well, that's the next development that we will be watching for. Uh, when we think about where do we go from here after all of those announcements from the Chancellor and the reaction that we've been getting uh, from other political parties and, as we just heard there, from Katie Usher from the Institute of Directors as well. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and Marufal Hussain was on sound. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.